Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Trudy Styler's new comedic drama, Freak Show. Based on the novel by James St. James, the film tells the story of Billy Bloom, a boldly confident and flamboyant teen newly relocated to an ultra-conservative high school in the Deep South. After suffering persecution and bullying, he decides to wear his inner freak with pride and run for homecoming queen. Freak Show is Miss Styler's feature directorial debut, her other directing credits include the documentary The Sweat Box and the short film Wait. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Styler spoke with director Ira Sachs about filming Freak Show. During their conversation, Ms. Styler discusses how she came to direct the film, how she tackled the film's themes of bullying, and her approach to handling the tonal shifts between comedy and drama. Hello, everybody. Hi. Um, thank you for that film. I, I, um, I had only seen it tonight, so I'm with the audience in, in the experience. And for me, it was, uh, it was such, it, it's just a very moving story that I found much more personal than I expected. And I imagine for you, it is as well. Um, it might not seem obviously autobiographical, but I sort of wanted to start by asking you, why this film? Why this story? Well, the story came to um, to Maven Pictures, uh, which is a, a company that Celine Rattray and, and me have headed up for seven years, and to Flower Films. And um, we really loved the story of uh, of of Billy's you know, fight against his detractors and the wit and the wisdom that he shows throughout, even when he's beaten and uh, bullied and beaten to a pulp. The first thing that he asks for uh, when he comes round is, could he please have his lip gloss? And uh, uh, he has an indomitable spirit and leadership qualities. And so when he sets out his bid for homecoming queen, of course, we want him to. We want him to win. So I was... Um, I was very attracted to the story. I do think there are personal reasons. Um, I've, 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 I seem to say this quite a lot on the uh, promotion, so I, I hope it doesn't seem like it's it, like I'm doing a poor little me here, but uh, I was hit by a truck when I was nearly three, and uh, my face was very severely scarred. Um, and uh, those scars sort of like went around with me, so when I went to school, um, you know, the expression in the film, the nail that uh, sticks out gets hammered down. That is really a very true aphorism uh, that happens in uh, in schools, sadly, when kids look different. doesn't mean to say you have, a, have to have a physical impairment. It could be the wrong hairdo. It could be the wrong... You, you believe in the wrong God or you, uh, as in Billy's case, he uh, feminizes himself and uh, uh, and... and uh, is figuring out who the, who the t who is he really? Um, I think uh, that I resonate with those the story of uh, being um, 
bullied as a child, and I think that what it did in later life was maybe perhaps help give me a voice to uh, give my voice to represent people um, who are bullied in other ways. The indigenous people of our rainforesting and myself have worked for 30 something years in tropical rainforest areas with indigenous people who's, who live so remotely from uh, anywhere else that their voices often have not been heard and so to really represent uh, their rights and social justice is something that uh, my husband and me have taken very, very seriously. And I think that perhaps that my background really contributed to that. There's, um, it reminded me of, of something I think about, about being a teenager, is that there's so much pain. It's almost like consistent. But the film is a comedy, and it's a very, it has a lot of lightness. I'm wondering what the kids that you were working with, the actors, the young people, what they brought and what, what it was like on set. It was a very joyful set. I mean, it, you know, that set was a very focused uh, set because I, uh, it, we had really very little money, um, less than $3 million, and uh, a four-week prep because I was not the director at the, uh, the, the get-go. I was only the producer. We had a director in place. Uh, our director uh, had to take a very sudden um, personal leave of absence, which left us holding the baby. And I uh, asked the producers, would they consider my taking on the, uh, the, the, the directing chair? And they said, yes, if you think you can get it done, because you saw that it's uh, seasonally, uh, was shot seasonally appropriate the early fall of 2015, in fact. Um, so I got the gig at the end of uh, July, and uh, we didn't have a cast, we didn't have any money. Uh, but we had a, this sort of like love of the story to tell the story. So the first person that I called was uh, was Bette Midler and asked her if I may send her the script. She didn't sound terribly keen on the phone, but lo and behold, two weeks later, she said, I'm in. And at that point, it was all systems go to get the film uh, cast. Finding Billy was really... Uh, really key, obviously, to find the right Billy, and that did keep me awake at night, because mm -hmm. I, I had this growing sensation, oh Lord, if I can't find the right actor, or we don't get the right Billy, we're screwed. This film, we don't have a film. As you see, he's in every scene except two, I believe, in the, in, in the film, so it's a, it's a huge central role, so. Um, where, having where did you find him? I found, I found uh, Alex in, uh, in London, I flew to London and asked A.V. Kaufman to send me some, some British actors. Uh, and, uh, I, and when I was working with my other director, we'd seen 85 uh, young uh, male actors and some uh, were, um, they were very, very good, uh, but I, I couldn't quite resonate in the, in the same way that I did when I met Alex and spent about 10 minutes in his company and this innate uh, wisdom, this sort of like uh, this, this kid who really felt like out from another century almost, um, you know, Quentin Crisp, uh, you know, an old soul. So we, we kept on amending the script once we'd cast Alex, even though we were so pressured. So we, all those Oscar Wilde quotes came uh, post the casting of Alex Lothar. Um, 
it was is, this is your first feature that you, that you've directed? Is that yes, correct? it is. Yeah. And, and and what um, what was the hardest thing about it, and and what was the biggest surprise of the process? I'll answer that in reverse. I think the biggest the biggest the biggest surprise after I got the first take done, which was a scene with Billy and Flip coming back to the house after the hospital, I felt my legs go from underneath me. Uh, it was like I was so terrified, and after that take, uh, I looked at my actors and I just said, "You're not. This isn't about you. you. You've no business being afraid at this point. You've got to give them all you've got. Help them in every way that you can." And I think that when I'm given that task to do, I'll step into those shoes. And it was just a very quick. Uh, coming uh, for me to get myself together and um, and to really think this this is um, we're telling a big story here about you know that it examines very big themes themes albeit in a comedic way and this is not about you so get on with telling this story and I felt an amazing sense of peace actually um, during those 22 days it's just a calm came over me and we we did come in on time and a little, a little bit over budget, but nothing in a way that was, you know, demeaning or, uh, <laughs> or, uh, or, or, or that, you know, led anyone to go ouch. It was, uh, it was, it was done very efficiently. And uh, I pay tribute, of course, to not just the cast, but the incredible crew that we were managed to get on board. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're a parent, and I'm, I'm wondering, as, and you've, You've had teen, teenage. I, I'm friends with Mickey, so I, I know your daughter. Yes. And um, I'm curious what you brought to the production in terms of your own experience of having watched your kids live through this period in their own lives. Um, I said, you know, Sting and I raising, uh, we have six children between us and six grandchildren now. Um, it was very important. Um, because we were brought up, the pair of us, in a, um, you know, quite modest surroundings. And our kids were brought up uh, in you know, very sort of like, you know, privileged environment. Um, and we both felt that you know, we, we never wanted them to be, take anything, their lives for granted, or the sort of like the, 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 the wonderful things that they have that other people don't have. We didn't want them to just sort of like think that this is just what befalls everybody in life. Um, and that, that sort of like is a, it's a challenge as a parent who, you know, we, you know, Sting's a uh, successful uh, recording artist. So, you know, there were many more resources in our lives than there were when, when um, he and me were growing up. And so, we decided we would live in the countryside and take the kids out of the urban kind of jungle to really feel the soil beneath their feet and to like, you know, we had a farm and so um, that they had this sort of like kind of bucolic upbringing and a little old fashioned, if you like, where, you know, we had old fashioned manners. And so the, the kids are, uh, are very polite and they don't take things for granted. They're, they're good kids. Um, you know, we've had, we have all we've had issues with 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 all of them, but um, in the big scheme of things, um, 
being quite often absentee parents, uh, you know, I, I think that I've seen that sometimes that that has played into some insecurities in them. And when you look back on how you parent, there are some regrets. And I think that that's one of mine that um, I was always sort of busy um, with our foundation or, you know, supporting Sting and sometimes feeling that the kids were either being pushed around the world and um, not really uh, having, you know, the consistency that uh, I could have perhaps brought to them um, as a mom. But, you know, we have to look at the big picture. Are they happy and fulfilled? Yeah, and do they work hard? Um, we, Sting and I have very hard work ethic. We're really, we're very driven people. And um, happily, all our kids are, are very uh, driven and very generous and, uh, and they're bringing up their children very well, which is very, very good to see that. Uh, the sensitivity of your answer just now is reflected in the film, I would say, because there is a empathy for the parents, for the kids, and ultimately, I think what's most powerful of the film is the general understanding of, of the universal yeah, in, in the struggle of the story. So thank you for that. I want to open it up a little bit to the audience if people have questions. I'm just going to repeat the question, as, yeah. uh, which is the film harkens back to films like The Breakfast Club and other teen movies, but it seems very much of this era. Uh, were these inspirations to you? You know, I, I, that's it's been it, it, it's been compared to um, a, a John John Hughes um, film, Breakfast Club, and um, just Sixteen Campbell. Yeah, Candle. Um, I, I don't think I was a. I, I love those films. I don't think I was a particular sort of like, oh, I want this film to look like Breakfast Club or to sort of like be like it. And other people have said it's a bit like Harold and Maud, which I sort of like can't quite get to. I think they meant Alex is a little like Harold, probably. But it's a very old soul. It's a bit like know. Maud, too. <laughs> yes, it's a bit like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Um, I, I didn't have time, really, to think, in, you know, how will this film look? I had time and personal time to think, what is this story? Let's tell this story. And I've known Dante Spinotti since 1988, 87, I think. I used to work prolifically as, a, as an actor in England, and I did three films in Italy. And this one particular film was called uh, Fair Game. Uh, uh, it's not a marvelous film at all, um, but um, it, we, we shot it in Cinecitta uh, uh, over 12 weeks, and uh, the cast is me and Greg Henry, who shot for three days. I don't know if you, do you know Greg? He's in a lot of Brian De Palma films. It was great. And it was like wonderful when Greg came uh, for three days, uh, because the rest of the time I was just with a snake for the 11 weeks that followed. And, <laughs> and it was a very weird experience, a weird and wonderful. Uh, Nando Scarfiotti was the production designer. Milena Cannonero did what little costumes that I had. I was mainly running around in my undies being pursued by this sort of venomous, terrible snake. And uh, so there was a lot of time for... Uh, for chat on the set while the poor 
snake was being made up and made put through his paces. Uh, uh, and Dante and me uh, spoke a lot, and he asked, "Would I? Did he? Did I love acting?" And I said, "Yes, I did. Did it, did I think that I would always act?" And I said, "You know, I think I think one day um, when you know." You're re I'm retired from being an actor because, you know, we, we're sort of used, women of, of my generation, to being kind of like pushed out of limelight once you turn turned 40. It has changed a lot, but, the, you know, we could talk all night about, you know, the, what, what, what happens to women in the entertainment industry and how we're dominated, you know, by uh, male society throughout the entire... Uh, entertainment in industry, but I said, yes, I maybe I would be a director. And he said, well, I'll be at your side when you decide to direct. So in 2015, I made this call to him, and I've stayed in touch with him through the years. I said, hey, you remember in 1987 when you said you'd be at my side when I became a director? Well, that day's come. Are you in? And he said, well, when is it? And I said, September uh, uh, 2015. So he said, I'm in. And uh, and he, I, I I'm speaking about you know to this story of what the narrative is because Dante and me in those twelve weeks learnt uh, from each other him from looking very intensely of who my character was, um, uh, who who I was intrinsically. It was a very sort of like big portrait of a of a young woman, troubled woman. Um, and so we, ha we have a shorthand, and thank God it was him, because um, we talked a lot about the, uh, about the intimacy that I wanted to create in the film, that I always wanted Billy to be in our purview, that, uh, that we, we feel always, very quickly, we are on side with him, that we never really lose, lose sight of him. Um, to get up very close and personal, and we use this Fraser lens. You've seen this sort of like sometimes Billy looks sort of like it's like almost like it's in a goldfish bowl where we examining him and the, in the halls of shame uh, that I so remember at school where the bullies are spitballing and calling out that we wanted to really see, you know, the Billy's anguish, and that was very important to me to tell that story. On the other hand, we're in a comedy so to really sort of really parlay between the comedic theme to keep the energy and the pace up and as an actor I think this has served me um, quite well because I'm a classically trained actor I went to a wonderful academy the Bristol Old Vic and I was a, was a year ahead of uh, Danny Day-Lewis and known Danny for many years and it was a, it was a very strict academy where you really learnt your, put through your paces with different styles of acting and you know with comedy you, you keep up the energy, the energetic pace um, and when it came to that big scene that we do with Muff Comes Home, it's a sort of like a tragic comical, it's almost like a Shakespearean kind of like, is it funny or is it tragic? You know, she's just saying, she, you know, she wished she'd have flushed the kid away, he's hearing it, he's heartbroken, and then she's making some kind of like a drunken, you know, tragic display for, uh, play for, you know, the gorgeous flip, and you know, what kind of movie are we still in? Um, and uh, 
I shot it as a master, if you see, because I think great comedy exists in masters. You sort of like you're seeing everybody's um, reactions. Wonderful Celia Weston, great comedic chops, you know, bet. This is heaven sent. So we, so we, so I could really rely on my actors a lot, but really kept the pace up in those comedic moments. Um, Dante and I had already spoken of, you know, how uh, I wanted the the scene to, to to look when I wanted to focus on on Billy and where and um, you know he's such an extraordinary cinematographer that. Um, you know, of course, I was more privileged than most first-time directors to have somebody of his chops who was who would suggest some great ideas. So I I, I feel that being a director above anything else, um, I feel I can't speak for 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 you and for the directors in the room. It's um, it's very collaborative. If you hire Colleen Atwood and Dante Spinotti, you know, I'm going to say. Hey Colleen, I think um, I was thinking of this idea and this idea, but it's like then she goes away and she comes out with the costumes that um, Alex Lawther wore just from a conversation. It's important to me. He wears uh, he he becomes a mermaid in that scene where he's come back from school and he, you know he, he it's almost like he puts that costume on as an armor. You know, he, it's like I, I've got to be me. You know, Flips told me to wear those Wranglers and and uh, and to be less fabulous. And I'm going to try it because I love Flip, but it's not working because when you're targeted, you're targeted. So he comes back and he puts this beautiful dress on. And I wanted him. I saw him as a mermaid. I said, Colleen, can you make a mermaid dress? Boy, did she make a mermaid dress. <laughs> and likewise, when he gets beaten up, I wanted him to be a bride. I wanted that bride to be defiled to go into that room and to be mauled and molested and blooded and uh, I think that gave it poignancy and 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 again Colleen she designed this like extraordinary wedding dress for for, for Billy so I, I've, I I'm sorry I've gone off <laughs> on my oh, own no. tangent here it's, it's great to hear from 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 the experience of of how, how sort of careful everything was um, in the film and, and the collaborations as well. Questions? <laughs> and he was good. He's watching, he's watching it for the first time tonight, oh. the, the opening. Yeah. yeah um, um, Singh and I have been neighbors of, uh, of John weirdly in uh, New York and L.A. Uh, for uh, as long as we've been having kids, so 30-something years. And um, I, I, I just saw him, when I read the script, I, and I read Coach Carter, it's like, he's, he's like McEnroe. So, oh, I know him. So <laughs> it's worth a punt. And uh, I said, uh, I called his agent. I was very respectful. I called his agent, and I said, um, do you think John would ever do this role? It's a small role in a in a film that is examines bullying, but it's a it's a it's I'd really love him to do it. And he said, "What to play him? You mean?" And I said, "Well, no, not exactly. I mean, maybe traits of him, certain personality traits, but uh, definitely not him." And uh, and he, and he had a ball, and of course, all the cast and crew were delighted. And when you you have to work on, as you know, under the 
you know, the pressure of you've got to get this sucker in in 22 days, and 22 days for making a 90-minute picture is, that's you're really like having to jam. So there weren't, wasn't much time off. So when we had John on set, because the whole crew, like they, they were lit up. It was a great bonus in many, many ways. He really was a natural. I mean, there, He's I, a natural, was, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. We have yeah. time for maybe one or two more questions and then wrapping up. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I've been on the road with the film for um, a year. When I say on the road, it's, it's enjoyed 29 film festivals, um, a, a lot of LGBTQ festivals. And I've sat through many screenings, like really um, to not to see my film, but to watch the kids uh, watching the film and then to do talkbacks. And uh, it was, it's been really illuminating to like, listen to them and hear their challenges. Um, and as I went along, I was thinking, I can't just like make a film like this and to your point, just like let it be just another movie because the themes are so important and so prevalent and becoming even more prevalent with the amount of cyberbullying that's going on and um, the tragic number of teenagers who are taking their lives. Uh, so... Um, um, I, wanted, I wanted to reach out to um, not-for-profit and came across Stomp Out Bullying, and um, we're, working, we're partnering with them. And um, uh, they really deal with bullying more in the cyberspace and uh, in the um, digital space with kids who are really you know, up against it with the detractors and who are threatening to kill themselves. And... They've saved a lot of lives. They're nationwide. They're a really responsible organization. So, um, so we're partnering with, with them. And I'm looking at ways we can um, endow them. Um, it's important that they stay you know, solvent and able to do the work that they do to work with the psychologists that they need to work with to, to help these kids. Yes, you're, it's not getting better um, bullying um, because of our... Um, because of this digital age. I think, you know, and I don't know if any of you saw the Wall Street Journal, but Sting and I uh, um, joined an advisory board for um, Jana, with Jana Partners. Um, uh, and we, um, when I say taking on Apple, I don't mean it in the sort of like an attack on Apple, but uh, Apple, I think, uh, uh, guilty of uh, not enough checks and balances really for um, what, how kids um, get addicted to their screens. Um, there are a lot of papers, uh, medical papers that are written that this is a, this is a disorder to, be, to get addicted to your screen. It's not something that is easily fixed either. So we really need to be very proactive about it. So it's addiction and it's it's, it's bullying, and these are big themes that come from, you know, our brilliant technological age, which we all, you know, are so grateful for in many ways. But, we you know, we'd, we have, you know, opened Pandora's box, and we must be always present and, and sensitive to, like, you, you know, children who are the younger generations to us are, are born into the world at, the, at this time, we who are older had the privilege, I would say, I'd call it, of being born into a world pre-cyberspace where 
you took your problems to your best friend or to your community or to your mum or to whoever and talked about them and your community would support you and sure you know bullying is an ordinary evil it's prevalent it's always been here but the insidiousness of cyberbullying has not always been here and the um, the effects that it's having on our teenagers is something that I, I think is is frightening. I think it is something that no parent can take for granted that their kid, when they come home from school, if they've had a bad day and they go online, you know, that day can become a tragic day. I've actually had friends who've had that personal experience with their 17-year-old son, and I've seen, you know, how dreadfully painful that has been to, to them. And And we can do something about it by being present, by saying there are dangers here and let's look out for it and regroup in communities. I think that we're, our communities are breaking down because of at this age of technology. One final question, because we're in the community of the Directors Guild. What, what are you going to direct or work on next? Um, you know, it was, it's important to me to get Freak Show into the world. Um, uh, we are opening in nine cities theatrically and video um, on demand. Uh, it'll end up in Hulu uh, in April. And I'm going to work out with Stomp Out for a, a while because I, I really, I'm very serious about this, this issue and it's really opened my eyes through all these talkbacks with young people with, you know, that um, I'd like to get involved. And directing-wise, I'd like to... I mean, I took Freak Show on because there was a need to take it on. Um, I'd like to find a story that um, just speaks to me organically and I can take my time and help fig figure it out. That said, I, I probably won't be nearly as sort of like, you know, efficient with the processes I've been because I've been a producer for such a long time and I know how to get the job done. Uh, so, uh, I am an actor too. I have two plays in the um, two, two plays in the offing. One is at the public, which I hope we'll we'll get done, and the other is at the Women's Project. Um, so, there's there's certain irons in the fire. Nothing nothing concretized until um, until our freak shows in the world. Well, congratulations on the film, and thank you so much, and thank you to all of you. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.